Right, okay, here we are. Um, challenges, yes. Um, I'm going to give uh, a lot of stuff um, which will raise a whole lot of issues and not really suggest any great solutions, but I hope might provide some ideas. Oh, it's just interesting talking about Twitter. I, I had an abusive message on Twitter about this meeting, which is just great. I don't usually get them. I'm undunk, so this lot, um, that, you do that and you link to the program of this meeting. So that is great. I'm really proud of that. Um, so there's a few cliches about risk and uncertainty, which I believe. The first is the, the, the you know, which are sort of trotted out all the time. The media demands certainty. You know, Tell me, is it safe or not? Um, discussing the possibility of emerging risks, if we meant to talk about risks, new things, everyone will panic. The whole sort of amplification business is to lead to panic. And that if we acknowledge uncertainty, scientific uncertainty or dispute, it'll necessarily lead to mistrust and derision. We must present a concerted front, etc. Now, these, I think, are sort of standard cliches that are rolled out. And um, I, I'm, uh, well, my conclusion, I actually doubt all of these, um, and I'm unsure of the empirical evidence for them. But um, I think that they, they are the standard things that are, people are anxious about. Now, so I, those are the sort of threads I'd like to take through the discussion. A risk and uncertainty, but I, I'm not going to try to define these exactly because everyone spends ages doing this, pointless. Just vaguely, I think this is what we generally understand. The risk is to do with problems that are fairly well structured, fairly well understood, that we could put at least put rough numbers on. We sort of know what we're talking about to some extent, some extent of quantification. Whereas uncertainty is where there's important doubt or dispute, either about the numbers or about how we even to structure the analysis, what are the important issues. Of course, there's everything in between. Um, I, in, in health, I'm particularly concerned with the issue of, is there a risk or not? Uh, mobile phones, etc., etc., um, and and that's actually where these get mixed up. Is this about a matter of magnitude, in other words, what the risk is, or is it a matter of uncertainty about whether the risk is zero or not? And they tend to get really mixed up in the, in this debate. Um, and I think it's what was mentioned before by James: the fact that can we turn uncertainty is there a, into a qualitative discussion into a quantitative discussion about what well, is the risk? Is it big or not? Is it important or not? And um, the, the good advantage of only writing your talk in the morning is that, like I do, is that you can use current talks. That's today's paper. Um, in today's independent, even moderate drinking during pregnancy can affect a child's IQ. Researchers have found that single unit of alcohol a week resulted in less intelligent babies. Um, that is actually a complete lie. It, they didn't find that at all. It's a total lie, that headline. Completely wrong. Researchers have found women who consume as little as one glass of wine a week at babies like IQs were almost two points lower than non-drinkers. That's a lie. They didn't. I mean, Leveson is complaining about, um, you, know, uh, you know, reporting of people's private lives. But is that okay? This is the table from the data. This is the data uh, table. Non-drinkers IQs. Non-drinkers IQs. For the mean IQs, it was 103, 103, 103, 100 across there. Drinking during pregnancy, they had higher IQs, all of them, 108. <laughs> Children of drinkers had higher IQs. That's what the researchers found. Isn't that amazing? Um, apparently, not according to the Independent, that's not what they found. Um, 
So just made the story up. Um, what they, it's a complex study involving Mendelian randomization. What they found is that children with um, uh, particularly particular genetic makeup, particular risk alleles, had a lower IQ among the drinkers and not among the non-drinkers. So that's what they actually found. The Daily Mail is much better. And uh, this is Daily Mail actually got it, got it um, rather right. They didn't conclude because the, the researchers did not find that people who drank, children had lower IQs. But you can see this is from another website, another newspaper, how the public responded, or how what the media choose as a public response. Gwen Jones, expecting a first child, said, there's so much ambiguous out there, what you can do and what you can't do, what you should and shouldn't do. So something that comes out medically and says, definitely do not do it, it's going to harm your child, I think is brilliant. Of course, the study didn't do that. Um, this is a, it's an epidemiological study. It can't tell you what to do or not, even though the researchers were very happy to tell people what to do. And um, the study does not say that because there's no estimate of magnitude of effect in the paper or in the study. It can't be estimated from the study. So, um, I mean, I think that's a, an example just today of how uh, really quite complex science is, is misreported, is um, either deliberately or through incompetence, and leads to immediate suggestion of, of I suppose quite reasonable, what, should I, what, should, what does it mean to me? What are the policy implications? Um, so I'd just like to make a whole lot of sort of string of points about um, the way that the media deal with risk and uncertainty. So it's just raising issues. The first thing is this business that the rarer things get, the more coverage they get when they happen. Um, so, you know, the, the story, the actual story is there's been a massive fall in child abuse deaths linked to new protection policies. You wouldn't know any of that story about, the, about large reductions, given that when it, things happen, they get so much coverage. The crucial thing is the rarer things get, the more coverage they get. I like, I like transport. Train casualties since 1949. Passenger deaths per year. 100, 150 a year, down 50 a year, blah, 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 blah. No one's been killed on a passenger as a passenger for five years on British railways. When it happens, there's going to be a hell of a lot of news about it. No one is killed on trains anymore. They are too safe. They're spending too much money on this sort of safety. So, um, Whereas uh, the number of people killed by trains, outside the trains, has stayed at 300 a year since 1949. It hasn't changed one little bit. Every year, 300 people are killed by trains. Not much publicity about that. So the rarer things get, the more publicity they get. And what it is, is that narratives, which is what newspapers are about, I always remember this, newspapers, narratives, numerators, they only look at the things that happen, they don't look at the things that don't happen. So always called denominator neglect. A child is murdered on the way to school, a terrible tragedy, unbelievably rare, because we don't hear about the millions of children who aren't killed every day on the way to school. So it's a standard term for this denominator neglect, which means that you do get this, as um, other people are much more expert in about it than I am, um, the amplification of events when they do occur. Now, there's also nothing like a good headline, of course. Um, I'm, I'm not going to deal with climate change. I'm not even going to do Fukushima, because those are such classic ones. But I'll just do some funny one. Hidden danger in fruit juices. You know, it's a sort of standard story. Um, and shock warning, mobile phones can give you cancer. A completely untrue headline. Grossly misleading. Doesn't even 
Yeah, as usual, it's written by the sub-editor. There's no resemblance, actually, to the story underneath. Uh, there's no evidence, direct evidence, that mobile phones can give you cancer. Um, fizzy drinks make teenagers violent. I, again, in a classic sub-editor getting hold of a story that doesn't say that and putting that headline on it. Um, the point is that this is a lovely cross-sectional study. They interviewed some American kids. They said, how many fizzy drinks do you drink per day and how violent are you? And they found a correlation. Well, I mean, maybe being violent makes you thirsty. I mean, it's, it's, completely, it's completely re good reason for this. So, totally inappropriate headlines. Um, sometimes because it might just be incompetence. Um, this is a nice one. The 30, they had such trouble. This was a recent epidemiological study. Um, such trouble reporting this. Daily Mirror. Replacing meat with nuts thought to reduce the risk of dying by 20%. That's great for one in five of us won't die if we eat nuts. And today, Express is even better. Um, if you cut down the amount of red meat you eat, 10% of all deaths could be avoided. <laughs> isn't, isn't science wonderful? I mean, what, the things you can do. I, it's just hopeless because, and I, I blame the scientists. This is my conclusion out of all this. I blame, I do not blame the media for this rubbish. I blame the scientists, and particularly I blame the press release. Of course, that's not the press release's fault. That's just incompetence. That's a, it's not a risk story. It's just how Fox News deals with um, graphics. That's the worst pie chart I've ever seen. I test this on 14-year-old kids, you know, and uh, they can spot that's not a very good pie chart. And this one, this is a lovely one. I, it's unfair to pick on these. Child obesity forecasts excessive. A separate opinion poll yesterday suggested that 50% of obese people earn less than the national average income. <laughs> oh, this, is, this is shocking. You know, the terrible news here. It's a disgrace. He, then he says it's a disgrace. <laughs> Particularly disturbing reading. Um, I mean, you don't get these, this nonsense so often, but it, it, it's a level of incompetence. I, as I said before, I blame the press release time and time again. And um, you can just see this sort of press release is the way they do it. Dried fruit just as healthy as fresh. And this is from the World Nut and Dried Fruit Congress. <laughs> in they come, they come into the desk and they get rewritten. Um, but this is a classic one. This is my favorite one for the, the, this press officer should get the award for press officers. This is a spectacularly dull paper in Nature Genetics that said 10% of people have got a genetic variance that reduces the risk of high blood pressure. It's known as a positively framed story, the positive frame. You pick on the people who look good, 10% reported, no coverage at all. But the press office got hold of it and rewrote the story as nine in 10 people carry a gene, which increases the chance of high blood pressure. Just change the frame. You looked at the, not the 10%, but the 90%. So if there's 10% reduction, there's 90%, it increases the risk. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just grossly misleading. Isn't that clever? That went right around the world. Headlines, huge coverage, probably a rise for the press officer. It's a nonsensical way to report the story. Because you change from a positive frame to a negative frame. And um, so you just recoded in a sense what's the good and what's the bad outcome. So that's just um, sheer manipulation by, by the press officer. That, that, that it was just... You know, everybody fell for it and, and reported the story. This is the standard one. I love the health ones because, you know, as you said, I'm not going to talk about climate. I work mainly on health. And um, you can, this is the sort of what you might call the archetypal health story. 
the, what I call the cats cause cancer story, the, the, the routine exposure that's going to do horrible things to you. Um, so this is daily fry up, uh, increases, there are other ones daily express here, um, increases the chance of pancreatic cancer by almost a fifth, according to a new study. Whoa! There's only one, CRUK, Council Research UK, I think are the one people who tend to report this thing quite well. There's only one organisation, CRUK, that reported the absolute risk of getting pancreatic cancer during your lifetime, which is one in 80. Horrible cancer, nasty disease. So what might be done in trying to improve the communication of these things? Well, first of all, we could look at absolute risks instead of relative risks. Standard thing. So 400 people not eating a bacon sandwich every day, eating that, that thing for breakfast every day, that's how many will get pancreatic cancer during their lifetime. All of those. That means, sadly, they will get pancreatic cancer. Now, 400 other people who eat that every morning, when they're stuffing your gold with that every morning, that's how many will get pancreatic cancer. Oh, sorry, did you notice the difference there? That's it. That's it. Now, so all of these people eat that every day, one more. That's the 20% increase that got the headline in the paper. Now, put in those terms, it doesn't look quite so exciting, does it? Now, what's interesting is that the um, ABPI, Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry, now mandate under their code of conduct that clinical trial results must be reported in terms of absolute risks and not relative risks. That just that newspaper headline would not be allowed even in drug trials but it's fine in epidemiology. Okay, let's look at some alternative metaphors. How else could we, what sort of language could we use that might possibly actually um, improve the way that some of these things were talked about? Now, the one I like um, has been developed uh, around uh, extreme weather forecasting in particular. So this is the way traditionally the uh, hurricane paths have been predicted. So this is Hurricane Irene in 2011. The National Hurricane Center in Florida in the U.S. produces what's known as the cone of uncertainty. Ooh, the cone of uncertainty. There it is. So that's, there's a two-to-one chance the Hurricane Park will be in that cone. They used to put a central line in and take it out because people fixated on the central line so much. But it, also, they were producing that. But the new services were using this as, a, as an image for they were using this idea of possible paths. They produced multiple computer runs showing the possible paths of the hurricane. So the metaphor is changing one from so essentially a risk metaphor to one of possible futures, possible ways the thing, things might turn out. This is known as spaghetti plot. As people in the audience know a lot more about these things than I do. But um, it, was a, it went straight onto national news. There's a very vivid way. I mean, in fact, I think it went along more along the outside, along the inside, just to produce the, the idea that there's, um, we're uncertain, it could do this, it could do that, this is kind of range of possibilities, not exactly a probability distribution, but you give an idea of what the range is. And uh, I think it's a very powerful metaphor, the possible futures, and it's one we're actually trying to bring in to some of the health communications, instead of talking about 100 people like you or something like that, to talk about 100 ways things might turn out for you, to personalise it. Think of the way possible ways things might turn out. <coughs> Another metaphor, which I think is rather nice, that's been suggested, is in to communicate, um, uh, in a way, probabilities of events from experts, is to actually explicitly mention the chance of being wrong. 
Use that as a language. So, last Monday, mon uh, not Monday, the Monday before, I thought Obama would win the election. It was November the 5th or something like that, yeah. But actually, my judgment was that there's a 14% chance I'll be wrong. So if someone asked me to, to say one, I think, yes, I think Obama would win. But I could also say, but I could be wrong, and I can actually quantify the chance I put on that I will be wrong. And I thought it was quite nice, because all I was going, of course, was by next was 538 forecasts, but on Monday had Obama at 86% and Romney at 14%. Um, by Tuesday, it was 92% for Obama, 8% for Romney. So the odds were there, and I know his odds are very good, very good, reasonable betting odds. So I would have said, yeah, I think Obama's going to win, but there's a 14% chance I'm wrong. I think that's quite an interesting metaphor that people have suggested, wasn't it? Andrew Gelman suggested that as a way of communicating uncertainty. Because if you just say 86%, it looks like, oh, yeah, he's going to win. No, 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 he might not. No, he could be wrong. So um, I thought that was quite strong. Now, okay, let's, look, let's see if we can get some stories from other areas where there was, again, some, you know, not just, again, this division between risk and uncertainty is not always so easy to make at all. The killer cucumbers. The killer cucumbers was a great story. Remember that last year? People dying in, in Germany and um, poor old Spanish Minister of Agriculture having to go around eating cucumbers. <laughs> they're safe, they're safe. And they were safe. It was the wrong co E. coli they found. They found E. coli in the Spanish organic cucumbers. It wasn't the one that was killing people. They got it wrong. And there was a gross overstatement of confidence by the original lab. A really bad communication of uncertainty. And Peter Sandman, who got a lot of these American person who blogs on risk communication a lot, has got a very nice um, blog and a really deconstruction of this story. And I'd like, just like to point out some of the things he says about this story, but I think are much more general. He says you know, that scientists, when they're communicating, shouldn't just acknowledge uncertainty grudgingly, they proclaim it. So this is his ethos. He's got to proclaim uncertainty and proclaim how uncertain you are. From I'm taking a shot in the dark here to I'm almost certain, but there are still a few remaining doubts to clear up. So you actually have a scale of uncertainty. Now, I would love to see, I mean, uh, we'll come on to the climate stuff later, because I know that IPCC in the sense have been developing these scales, um, and there have been there's some in health as well, where people have tried to do it, but it would be great to have something like that um, that one could refer to. And then it allows you to look at, since you've got a scale of uncertainty, you say how your uncertainty is changing. Is it going up? Is it going down? It's still unquantified. It's still not putting a probability. So my numbering is not complete. And come across as human. Actually, that's right. It should be number one. That makes you think that you're going to come across as human. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I thought those were quite good, strong conclusions about that. Okay, what else could be done? Here's, here we're getting into, we're starting to get into advice now. One of the interesting things is um, Science Media Centre, which I do quite a lot of stuff for. Um, Fiona Fox gave evidence to Leveson, and she rather casually said, oh, I could, produce my, I could get a group of people together and they could produce science guidelines on one page of side of A4 in an afternoon. So Leveson said, right, do it. <laughs> and so we did. I was part of this group. Um, and so we produced a one-page sheet, which is downloadable from the Science Media Centre. It's been submitted to Leveson. Now, whether it'll actually have any impact, but we got very good signing from a number of journalists who said they could get their editors on board. Now, I'm not going to go through them in detail, but a lot of it's to do with the, you know, the causation and correlation, the size and nature of the study. Is it just in cells? 
But here we've got the absolute risk stuff coming in, not just relative risks. Um, what, how, what about other evidence? Does it fit with other evidence? External sources, the quotes, findings and extrapolation interpretation. Don't say something's a cure. Uh, this is the real tricky one. The headlines shouldn't mislead the reader. <laughs> Whoa. Can we control the sub-editors? I mean, the headlines are just gross in so many of these things. So, um, very interesting, but uh, a brave initiative. We'll see what happens. Because if we look at you know, guidelines, they're very clear about what we should be doing. If you look at the government, the government material on communicating risk uncertainty is excellent. The, nobody look, takes any notice of it, as far as I know, but there's really good, the, nobody, there's a really good um, document on the UK Resilience website on risk communication. Excellent. Nobody looks at it. Um, there's this one that came from the Treasury, the Orange Book, which talks about principles of managing risk to the public, about openness and transparency and uncertainty. Again, I never see this referred to at all. Um, David Willits, you don't have to read all that, but he just said that you know, when he was giving evidence, said communicating the intrinsic uncertainties of scientific advice is something we probably need to do better. So all the sort of rhetoric is to do with openness and transparency about uncertainty. So um, I'm going to conclude by saying, you know, are these true? Um, I, I actually sort of doubt it. But do we, as scientists or other people who, you know, who are trying to do communication, do we act if they are true? Are we so nervous about it? Are we so nervous about the public? Are we over nervous, over 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 cautious? Can we have more trust? And my basic belief in all of this stuff, the way I constantly see things coming down to the press release, to scientists themselves and certainly their institutions, pumping up stories unnecessarily, which the men in the media report them. Sometimes the media just get it wrong, of course, but never mind. Um, and I, I strongly believe this, that it's in the bed of the scientists, it's their responsibility to set the tone of the communication, the language of the discourse, the way that uncertainty, because it will be carried through, almost certainly. We can see, I haven't done GMOs either, but we can just see this summer, last summer, how by the scientists of Rothamsted being proactive about engaging in the communication, taking the um, protesters uh, concerned seriously and respectfully and saying we want to meet and talk to you. What a, a, a complete change in the coverage of GMOs in the, in the, even by the Daily Mail. Because we know what happens when, they, when scientists get it wrong. The lacrimal ver verdicts and everything like that just shows when scientists essentially get manipulated into um, conveying a particular message, in this case of premature reassurance, they end up in jail. Well, they probably won't go to jail, but they've certainly been and, and sentenced to jail. So we always just have to remember, you know, the archetypal example of risk communication. John Gummer in 1990, beef is safe. Force feeding his daughter Cadelia a um, beef burger, and then, you know, just a couple of years later, we had a whole BSE disaster. Um, now, one of the things I, I like about this is that actually, I just want you to notice is that modern forensic analysis, photographic forensic analysis, was, reveals that this is not the bite mark of a four-year-old <laughs> <laughs> So we have to be very careful what we're saying. Okay. All right. Thank you very much.